So today we want to talk about the discipline of study and thinking. We've already discussed studying the Bible in particular. Today we're going to kind of talk more broadly about studying and thinking in general. But before we do, I want to be clear that we have a priority as Christians, and that priority is there is only one book which is inspired. There's only one book which is the ultimate authority for our lives. Reading and studying other books is good. That's what we're going to talk about uh, today. That's wise, that's helpful, that's good. But that's a supplement. It's not a substitute for reading Scripture. I've I've had friends who would uh, regularly, in their quote-unquote quiet times, they would read these really good theology books, but they wouldn't regularly read the Bible. And that's not healthy. That's misplaced priorities. Spurgeon says this, it's in your notes, all other books might be heaped together in one pile and burned with less loss to the world than would be occasioned by the obliteration of a single page of the sacred volume of Scripture. At their best, all other books are but as gold leaf, requiring acres to find one ounce of the precious metal. But the Bible is solid gold. It contains blocks of gold, mines, and whole caverns of priceless treasure. In the mental wealth of the wisest men, there are no jewels like the truths of revelation. The thoughts of men are vanity, low, and groveling at their best. But he who has given us this book has said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my ways you, uh, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let it be to you and to me a settled matter that the word of the Lord shall be honored in our minds and enshrined in our hearts. Let others speak as, as they may. We could sooner part with all that is sublime and beautiful or cheering and profitable in human literature than lose a single syllable from the mouth of God. So yes, read other books besides the Bible. That's what we're talking about today, but not in the place of the Bible. There is nothing that can replace the Bible. So with that said, that kind of caveat, here's what I want to do today. I want to I provide first a little uh, insight, a little overview into kind of our current cultural context, where we are in regards to thinking and studying in our culture. Uh, and uh, so talk about how uh, Christians have historically thought of thinking and studying. And then I want to answer uh, three questions. Why should we study? What should we study? And how should we study? Let's begin with how have Christians historically thought of studying? Growing up uh, in the church, I wasn't a believer until uh, I was 23, but I grew up in the church. And I never really thought, as I was growing up, I never really thought about the fact that God commands us to think. That wasn't really a part of the environment I grew up in. I grew up just hearing about believing. Everything was about believing and believing and faith. But that was never really explicitly or really even implicitly, in my mind, connected with this idea of of cultivating the life of the mind. Everything that I heard was all about the heart. Unfortunately, my experience growing up wasn't an anomaly. I would imagine many of you in this room had similar sort of experiences. I think for most of us, we weren't presented with a very intellectually robust version of Christianity growing up. It was very hard. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, all heart, very little head. But historically, what is the norm today would have certainly been the exception. Back in uh, 2020, we taught on Christian education We gave numerous examples of how Christianity has been at the forefront of education throughout most of world history. I won't give all of those examples. You can go back and listen uh, to that. But just a few of those things. In the 11th and 12th centuries, 
the ideas of universities. If you wonder, where do we have colleges and universities? Where does that come from? That came from the Middle Ages, the 11th and 12th centuries. Universities were birthed as training centers for Christian ministers. That's the reason that universities were originally started. Most universities originally uh, were intended to train ministers. In fact, even Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of these were explicitly Christian when they were founded. Harvard's original motto was, for the glory of Christ. Before the Middle Ages even, education was mainly done, before the birth of, uh, of universities and so forth, education was mo mostly done in culture through cathedrals and monasteries. And until the uh, 18th century Enlightenment, most of the most influential thinkers in Christian history were Christians, or at least uh, were claimed to be Christians. So historically, Christians have held that rigorous, diligent application of the mind to study was a way to glorify God. There is no area of life that God doesn't demand our obedience in, including the development of our mind, the cultivation of our mind. That's why as we see the church spread through, uh, through missiology, as the church spreads through mission, it leaves behind not only cathedrals and churches, it also leaves behind hospitals and universities. Because learning was seen as central to the mission. In fact, I once heard John Piper say that, uh, that in a lot of ways, Christianity is basically just literacy training. That's what Christianity is. It's teaching people how to read, primarily how to read the Bible. As an example of this, consider that uh, after the Reformation, literacy rates in Protestant areas just uh, absolutely shot through the roof. What's interesting is if you compare literacy growth in uh, areas that remain predominantly Catholic, like uh, Italy and Spain, literacy rates kind of continued at the same level that they were going before. Why did that happen? Well, because in Protestantism, there was this idea of the priesthood of the believer. Whereas in Roman Catholicism, there's this sacred-secular divide, and so uh, education and the cultivation of the intellect and so forth in Roman Catholic thinking, especially in Middle Age uh, uh, Roman Catholic thinking, uh, it was something that was uh, reserved for the, the elite, the clergy, and so forth. But according to Protestantism, there's the priesthood of the believer, and so education isn't just something that is for the intellectual elite. It's for all of God's people. All of God's people are to think rightly uh, about him. So consider these two quotes from historian, church historian Mark Knoll. First quote, To be sure, hard intellectual labor has not always led to a healthy church. Sometimes, in fact, the pursuit of learning has been a means to escape the claims of the gospel or the requirements of God's law. Yet generally, the picture over the long term is different. Where Christian faith is securely rooted, where it penetrates deeply into a culture to change individual lives and redirect institutions, where it continues for more than a generation as a living testimony to the grace of God. In these situations, we almost in, invariably find Christians ardently cultivating the intellect for the glory of God. And the next quote, the Protestant reformers, English Puritans, leaders of the 18th century evangelical awakenings like John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and a worthy line of stalwarts in the last century all believed that diligent, rigorous mental activity was a way to glorify God. None of them believed it was the only way or even the highest way, but all believed in the life of the mind, and they believed in it because they were evangelical Christians. But fast forward to today. Does that historic sort of position, does that seem to describe 
the overwhelming majority of pastors and churches and the average Christian in America today? Of course not. As the first sentence in a book by Mark Knoll reads, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Most pastors, most churches, most Christians today, at least in the West, are intentionally anti-intellectual. They divide the heart from the head. That's unfortunate. That's unbiblical. We'll talk about that. Why has that happened, though? We looked at a lot of causes. We looked into church history, particularly the pervasive anti-intellectualism that was attached to the revivals of the late 19th and early 20th century. If you remember, there's been two what's called great awakenings in the life of America. The first one was relatively good, um, and, uh, and there were... Uh, really intellectual uh, leaders of that movement, guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley. The Second Great Awakening, by and large, though, wasn't as good. Uh, it had uh, actually heretical uh, underpinnings with guys like Charles Finney and so forth. And so you have this radical, pervasive anti-intellectualism that accompanies the Second Great Awakening in the late 19th century, early 20th centuries. There was this strong dichotomy of the heart and the head, as if those are opposed. As if any time you increase in your knowledge of God, your love for God goes down. Or if you want to love God, you need to turn off your mind. There's this idea that comes about. And so uh, when asked about the importance of education, the 20th century uh, evangelist Billy Sunday said, if I had a million dollars, I'd give 999999 to the church and $1 to education. Well, that would be great if what he meant was the church is doing education, so I want to give all my money to the church so that they can do the work of education. But that's not what he meant. He meant that education was relatively unimportant and it was irrelevant to the cause of the gospel. Or D.L. Moody, he once said, my theology, I didn't know I had any. I wish you would tell me what my theology is. So that sort of idea was only exacerbated then by uh, theological liberalism. If you remember, we talked about that in church history, the growth of the, the liberal view of Christianity, in, especially in the, the German church. Guys like, like Adolf von Harnack, kind of the, the father of liberalism. And he said that Christianity was about, quote, life, not doctrine. Again, as if those things are opposed, life and, uh, and doctrine. So for much of the 20th century, this anti-intellectualism wasn't merely excused, it was actually celebrated. It was seen as a virtue. It's not a virtue, but it was seen as a virtue. As Os Guinness notes, it has always been a sin not to love the Lord our God with our minds as well as our hearts and souls. We've excused this in our culture with a degree of pietism and pretending that this is something other than what it is that is sin. Evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to think Christianly and develop the life of the mind. Right? So Pink Floyd was wrong when he said, we don't need no education, right? Christians, of all people, should be passionate about thinking and learning and studying. Doesn't mean you need a PhD. Doesn't need the, mean that you, you need to know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. But it does mean that you need to cultivate your mind. This is not something that's just for the academic elite, those ivory tower theologians or something like that. This is for all of God's people. With that in mind, let's consider why should you study. I'll give six reasons. Why should you study? Number one, to be like God. 
One of the things that we've tried to do all semester, we'll continue to do it, is to demonstrate how discipleship is about imitating Christ, who is the image of God. So we rest at least partly because Christ rested. We pray at least partly because Christ prayed. We meditate on and memorize Scripture because Christ meditated on and memorized Scripture and so forth. And though we don't have any evidence that Jesus read anything other than the Old Testament, it's still helpful for us to think about studying and thinking as a way that we are to imitate Christ and we are to image God. Here's what I mean. When we talk about who God is, we talk about these attributes of God. We think of attributes like his omnipresence and his omnipotence and also his omniscience. What is his omniscience? What does omniscience mean? Yeah, he's all-knowing. God knows everything that can be known. Now, that's really easy for God because he's infinite. He's eternal. That's impossible for us. We can't be omniscient. Since we're finite beings, God doesn't learn. God doesn't study. Because learning and study involves some degree of change, and God is, by definition, changeless. So God doesn't study. God can't learn something, because that would imply that he didn't know it already. So God doesn't learn, but only because there is nothing for him to learn. He is, by definition, all-knowing. So by studying and by thinking, we learn more. And thus we grow in our likeness to God. When we think rightly about subjects, whatever subject it might be, we honor God. God is the God of truth. That's certainly true for thinking rightly about the gospel or Jesus or whatever it might be. But it's also true when it comes to thinking rightly about people and about politics and about science and about math and so forth. These are ways that we glorify God. God is glorified in truth because God is a God of truth. God created Truth truth flows from him. All truth is God's truth, as has been said before. And so when we discover it, we become a little bit more like God. So unless or until we have all knowledge, this call to be like God assumes or or implies that we press forward. We desire to learn more. We cultivate our minds. So that's the first reason that we should think and study, to imitate the omniscient God. A second reason that we should study is to obey God. God. And when it comes to obeying God, there are obviously commands that we read books besides, uh, I'm sorry, there, there aren't commands that we read books besides the Bible, but there are commands that we uh, think and we engage our minds. Look at Colossians 3 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That demands that we think, that we ponder, that we contemplate. Or Philippians 4 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and so forth, if there's anything uh, worthy of praise, think about these things. Or 2 Timothy 2.7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Bless you. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed. Why? For lack of knowledge. We could go on and on. There's dozens and dozens of other texts that say the same thing. There, there are these explicit references to thinking and to pondering. That's commanded by God. So that's one way of looking at the idea of obedience. We obey God when we think and when we study and we contemplate and so forth. But another way of looking at it is not from the perspective of just these explicit commands that we think, but as an implicit uh, command. Bear in mind, one of the things the Bible is commanding us to do in the Great Commission is it commands us to go and to make disciples of all nations. If we're going to make disciples of all nations, that assumes, that implies 
that there is some understanding of the nations. For instance, if you're going to do, go do missions in Japan, you probably need to know the Japanese language. You probably need to know something about Japanese culture. And you see that sort of idea in the Bible as well. Look at Acts 17. <clears throat> this is a great missiology text. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Notice what Paul's doing. He's observing their culture. He's walking around. He's looking at their places of worship. And he's also reading their literature. Notice that he quotes from a pagan poet, probably a guy named uh, Eretus. He does a similar thing in Titus 1. Titus 1, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's probably from Epimenides of Crete. In other words, Paul's familiar with pagan literature. Paul loved Scripture. Paul wrote a great deal of Scripture. And yet that wasn't the only object of his study. He was studying the culture that was around him. So that's another sense in which we are obedient in our thinking. Thinking helps us to understand the culture around us. The Bible is sufficient in all that it teaches. The Bible is sufficient to help us understand what's happening in our culture in regards to race and justice and gender and sexuality and all of these other areas that are disputed in our culture. But sometimes it's really helpful to have others who can kind of synthesize for us what is happening in culture and help us to see how Scripture's authority relates to our lives. So that's a second way that we obey God in studying and thinking is by understanding the culture that is around us. But there's a third way that I mean by obeying God. Notice these scripture, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Or uh, we'll skip down to 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Notice what's happening here. The Bible suggests that ideas can be enslaving. It says don't be taken captive. Rather, it says that we are to take thoughts captive. This points to what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic doesn't have anything to do with Noah. It has to do with the Greek word for the mind. Right? The noetic effects of the fall refers to the fact that sin has corrupted not merely our hearts, but our minds. That's part of what we mean by total depravity. If you wonder what people mean by total depravity, it's not the idea that you are as bad as you possibly could be. You could be worse. You could be Hitler. Or you could be Mussolini. You could be Putin. Right? There are worse people out there than you. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity is the idea that every aspect of you, who you are, every single aspect of you has been affected by the fall. Your heart, your will, your emotions, your feelings, and even your minds. 
2 Corinthians 3, 4, 14, but their minds were hardened. 1 Timothy 6, 5, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The biggest text on this sort of idea of the noetic effects of the fall, the way that sin has, uh, has permeated and has, uh, has corrupted the way that we think is in Romans 1, 18 through 28. Notice all of the language in this as I read it. Notice all the language in here to truth and to the rejection of truth and, uh, and to uh, that sort of way of uh, our thinking being corrupted. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, they became futile in their thinking their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then look down the last verse there. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, sin disorders our capacity to think. Sin is something that is against God, it's against nature, and it is against reason. Sin, by its very definition, is unreasonable. So studying is a means of sanctification, to overcome that limitation, to, to reorder our minds, to reorient our minds, to think rightly. According to Romans, we're commanded to worship God rightly, and that means that we must think of him rightly. That leads us to the next reason that we should study, which is to mortify sin. One of the points that we've come back to throughout the semester is that one of the fruits of discipline is that the process itself can be rather sanctifying. When we wake up early in order to read the Bible, it's not just what we read that transforms us. That process of getting out of bed is also transformative. That mortifies our lust for sleep or when we choose to read rather than watch TV. Again, it's not just what we read that's important. Simply making that decision crucifies our desire to be mindlessly entertained or whatever it might be. Am I saying you should never watch TV? Am I saying that you should never sleep in? No, I'm not. But I'm saying that you should make that choice at least some of the time. Notice what Romans 12 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the ways that we avoid being conformed to this world is by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. We see that same sort of idea in Ephesians 4. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So thinking is explicitly connected to our sanctification, to mortification of sin. Like any discipline, it takes effort. It's a, a, a difficult pleasure, as it's, uh, as it's been called. So much of our culture today chokes out the life of the mind. 
Right? We can mindlessly binge watch TV. You don't even need to pop in a DVD. You don't even need to get up anymore, right? If you want to watch a movie, you just simply load up Netflix and it goes. You can watch movies on your phone. Or Twitter has diluted our attention span to a few seconds, right? We can, we can take in bites, uh, bits of information that are 280 characters, whatever it might be. So studying is this means to resist that slow drift to idiocracy. That's a third reason. A fourth reason that we should study is to cultivate humility. One of the reasons we have to study things apart from the Bible is so that we'll be better students of the Bible. All right? You study things apart from the Bible in order to be a better student of the Bible. For instance, if I'm going to preach a sermon, I'm going to consult at least three of what I think are the best scholarly commentaries I can find. Why? Because I figure there are things I'm going to miss in the text. And guys who have studied that book for their entire life are probably going to know it a lot better than I am. So studying is this form of community. It's a form of community that humbles us, that helps us get beyond ourselves, that turns our eyes outward. Sin is this twisting, this perversion of our affection. It, it, it turns inward. That's uh, the, uh, the Puritans called it incurvatus in se, this, this, this internal curving of our affections and our attention. And so studying is a means by which we can direct it outward. We read what others thought about theology, what others thought about doctrine and culture and life and so forth as a means of learning from them. G.K. Chesterton once said, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's the democracy of the dead. In other words, what we're doing when we study is we're trying to avoid the error of what uh, C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, the idea that newer is always better. The only way that we can do that is by getting outside of ourselves, outside of our own time, our own culture, our own experiences, and so forth. So reading helps us do that. Studying helps us do that. It helps to turn our eyes from our own thoughts, our own feelings, and thus it cultivates humility as we consider what others have thought. Another reason that we should study is to love and glorify God. Consider the great commandment. What's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is really the most important reason. If you want to know why you should study, this is why you should study. In order to love and glorify God. We think deeply. We think rightly. We study in order to glorify and worship God. John Piper says, uh, God did not give us minds as ends in themselves. The mind provides the kindling for the fires of the heart. Theology serves doxology. Doxology is the doctrine of worship. Reflection serves affection. Contemplation serves exaltation. Together they glorify Christ to the full. And then he also wrote, the main reason God has given us minds is that we might seek out and find all the reasons that exist for treasuring him in all things and above all things. And again, this has been the historic position of the church. May not be your experience in church, but this has been the historic way that people have thought about theology and doctrine and thinking and studying. Right thinking fuels right feeling. Theology fuels doxology. So we read that quote by Mark Knoll earlier. The Protestant reformers, English Puritans, all of these guys 
They all believed that diligent, rigorous mental activity was a way to glorify God. None of them believed it was the only way or even the highest way, but they all believed in the life of the mind. They believed it because they were basically Christians. So as we've said, if there remains in any of us, in any of you, this residue of thinking that the heart and mind should be divorced, that there should be this sort of dichotomy there, if you remain convinced to some degree that the only way to feel uh, much affections for God is to kind of dumb down the faith, you need to repent of that. Or if you think the more that you study, the more dull and dry you're going to be, you need to repent of that. Thomas Goodwin says, Indeed, thoughts and affections are sibi mutuo cause, the mutual causes of each other. Psalm 39.3, Whilst I muse, mused, <laughs> when you read something out of context, you get a weird word. Mused, the fire burned, so that thoughts are the bellows that kindle and inflame affections. And it, then if they are inflamed, they cause thoughts to boil. So we should uh, study in order to love and glorify God. And then also to love others. This might be a, a reason that you would have been least likely to have guessed. If, if I were just to ask you to think of reasons that you should study, you, this might not have come to your mind. Certainly, I mean by that, that those with the gift of teaching should study in order to encourage others, but I don't just mean that. I mean that you, if you never teach, you never preach a sermon, you never teach a class, you never do anything like that, by studying and thinking, that's a form of loving your neighbor. Timothy uh, Nichols, he says this, although it is true that an illiterate or alliterate, that's someone who can read but doesn't like to, Although it's true that an illiterate or alliterate believer can live a successful Christian life, it would be a mistake to conclude on that basis that reading is not crucial to Christianity. As long as there are some readers who accurately convey the text to the rest, the church can tolerate a shortage of readers. However, the fewer the people who, have ac who access the scriptures directly, the more power those who do will have. This is dangerous. Witness the many doctrinal and other abuses perpetrated by the medieval Catholic Church. Popular facility or proficiency with the text, prevents a priesthood of skilled readers. All right, what we're after is a, a priesthood of believers. We've said this before but at, at Parkway, but an informed congregation is the best means of keeping a church from drifting. You keep us from drifting when you, when you are tethered to theological convictions. Why am I confident that we won't one day decide we're going to back off complementarianism, we're going to back off reformed theology or something like that? The reason is because you wouldn't let us. An informed congregation is the best means to prevent your congregation from drifting. So part of the reason that you should study and that you should think is so that you can love others around you, so that you can disciple them, so that you can spot where they're drifting and so forth. Again, this doesn't mean that you need a PhD. This doesn't mean that you need to read 50 books a year or whatever it might be. But it does mean that you need to have some means of studying and thinking. So that's six reasons you should devote yourself to studying. Scripture, of course, but not only Scripture. So what else should you study? And there's a sense in which you should study just about anything that floats your boat, right? If you're a doctor, you should be the best doctor you can be. And that means studying. Same if you're a teacher or an engineer or whatever it might be. So study 
science and art and medicine and politics or whatever else, whatever you're interested in. Jonathan Edwards used to uh, study spiders. That was one of his hobbies. That was a means of increasing his appreciation of God. When he looked at the complexity of a little spider, he glorified God in that. Scripture commands us to study the ants and the birds and these sorts of things. Um, to think about God's grandeur as you consider the heavens. But my biggest encouragement, obviously, would be for you to study the gospel and the nature and character of God and the history of the church and doctrine and theology and so forth. And that's a really daunting task, all right? Every year, thousands, thousands of quote-unquote Christian books are published. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, no one can read thousands of books a year. And number two, most of those books are junk. Right? They're a waste, either because they're full of falsehoods or because they're just so fluffy and so unsubstantial. Life's too short to read bad books, right? So how do you find the right books? How do you find good books? That's a really hard question. It's been years since I was in an actual bookstore, but the last time I was, I walked down the Christian literature aisle. That's a depressing you know, couple minutes. Felt like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. I'll edit this. But Matt, uh, Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting, he's in Robin Williams' office. He's looking at his library. And again, edited for the sake of the audience, he says, you people baffle me. You spend all this money on beautiful, fancy books, and they're the wrong books. Now, here's what I mean. Imagine you're a pirate, all right? Imagine you're a pirate, and you have scurvy. What is scurvy? It's a deficiency of what? Vitamin C, all right? You need about, I don't know, 50 milligrams a day of, uh, of vitamin C to be healthy if the internet's correct. Conveniently, that's about what comes in an orange, right? As they say, an orange a day keeps scurvy at bay. Now, you can get the same amount of vitamin C from a number of other sources, all right? For instance, you can get vitamin C from raisins. You know how many raisins you would have to eat in order to get the same amount of vitamin C as you get in one orange? About 50 boxes of raisins, right? So is there vitamin C in raisins? Absolutely, but not much. That's how I feel about most books that you would see in Mardell or Barnes & Noble or whatever it might be. Most of the quote-unquote Christian living books out there. Is there anything spiritually beneficial in them? Yes, but it's so diluted. So if you want something more substantive, you want something more spiritually nutritious, I would encourage you to read something a little bit more dense, a little more packed with, uh, with spiritual nutrition. If you want a list of particular re recommendations, I've actually attached a comprehensive recommended reading list. Uh, it's in, in the appendix, and, uh, and so I'm going to turn it into a blog at some point. I just haven't had a chance yet. Um, so that is what you should study. I would encourage you to study those books. How should you study? Here's where we get down to some practical advice. I have eight thoughts on how to study. Number one, I would encourage you to read graciously. What I mean by that is to bear in mind the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Yeah, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's right, yeah. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm sure that's what everyone said. But this has to do with, uh, with critical thinking, all right? Mortimer Adler, who wrote a, a really good book called How to Read a Book, 
He says, do not say you agree, disagree, or even suspend judgment until you can say, I understand. Unless or until you've understood what you've read, you can't really evaluate it. So I would encourage you as you study to read graciously. The next thing I encourage you to do is to read widely. It's really common today to create these sort of theological tribes. We talked about that a bit in 1 Corinthians. I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. So today it's really easy to say, you know, I follow Piper, I follow Keller, I follow Chandler, whoever it might be. And we need to beware of that tendency in our own hearts. Yes, you absolutely can. You should have your heroes. But when your positions lead you to discount anyone who doesn't believe what you believe about everything, you'll find that to be a really lonely place because you're the only one who believes absolutely what you believe. Right? You realize that, right? You're the only person in the world that believes absolutely everything that you believe. Even your spouse believes something different about you or about something else than you. That's particularly the case today. For instance, right, I love John Piper, right? I don't agree with him on a number of issues. I don't agree with him on his approach to alcohol or gun control or some of his recent comments on race. And yet I have friends, though, that have just completely, you know, jettisoned him and said he's completely untrustworthy just because they don't agree on those issues. Or Tim Keller. I don't agree with his approach on just social justice. I don't agree with his views on baptism. He's Presbyterian. But I still would recommend that you read him. I think everything that I read by him is edifying and encouraging, even if I do disagree at times. So read widely. I mean that both in the authors and in the subjects. Next, read wisely. Back to that Goodwill Hunting quote. You have all the books, but they're the wrong books. I'm going to pick on for one second women's Bible study. All right? Six years I've been here. I've picked on women's Bible study zero times. So give me this one opportunity. The reason I want to pick on it is not because all women's Bible studies are bad, but because oftentimes, historically, Someone will send me an email and say, hey, we're doing a women's Bible study. I want the best book on prayer written by a woman. And I think, why does it have to be written by a woman? What does that have to do with the truth content of that particular book? Why not simply say, I want the best book on prayer. If it happens to be by a woman, that's great. But I'm not going to be ruled by my identity. I'm going to be ruled instead by God's word. And so I'd encourage you to do some research on what you read to know, is this the best book on the subject? Is there a better book on the subject? If I'm going to spend 10 hours reading a book, what if that 10 hours could be better spent reading something that is actually more nutritious? Again, think of that vitamin C scurvy example. Tim Challies is a guy who has a blog, and on that blog he uh, has a number of, uh, of book reviews. There's an entire section devoted to book reviews. That might be a good source to check out as would the appendix here in your notes. Next, read consistently. What I mean by that is that I would encourage you to make this a habit, make this a discipline. Even if it's just reading five to ten pages a day before you go to bed or as you're in the bathroom or whatever it might be. Carry a book with you to appointments. Have a book on your phone so you can pick it up if there's a delay. And don't worry about retaining everything. That's, that's uh, you know, part of our struggle 
We have 15 minutes here, and we're like, ah, I can't really get into a zone. I'm not going to remember what I read or something. But part of the good of reading is just the act itself, even if you don't remember everything. Doug Wilson says this. I think it's right on. He says, we test students right after they read something, mostly to ensure that they have, in fact, read it. From this, many have drawn the erroneous conclusion that the only good that can be extracted from the reading is that which can be displayed on or measured by such a test. This is wildly inaccurate. Most of the good your reading and education has done for you is not something you can recall at all. Fifth, read worshipfully. There's a sense in which all reading can be worshipful, but what I, what I really mean by this particular thing is that I would encourage you to read books that increase your view of God. Oftentimes when we have a problem in life, we want to read a book about that problem. And that's not necessarily a bad thing but I think the better approach is not to read a book about that problem but rather to read a book about the solution I found in my own life the biggest uh, breakthroughs in sanctification have come not whenever I was studying a particular sin but rather whenever I was studying God so for example if you find yourself if you uh, struggle with porn or with greed or with pride or with anger Maybe a book on sexual morality or greed or pride or anger, maybe one of those books would be helpful. But I've found that what's been more helpful for me is to read books on the nature and character of God. That's actually provided fuel to fight those sins more than studying those subjects themselves. Sometimes you have to take your eyes off of yourself. Sometimes you have to take your eyes off your sin if we really want to see victory. It's kind of like when you're driving and you check your blind spot. If you just stare at your blind spot the entire time as you're driving, you're going to crash. What you do with the blind spot is you look over and then you get your eyes back on the road. As a wise pastor once said, for everyone look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So read worshipfully. Read books that stoke the fires of your faith as you consider the nature and character of God and the gospel and so forth. Sixth, read diligently. Here's what I mean. Work at it. For some of you, this is going to be somewhat easy. All right, You love to read. This is like a, a warm blanket to your soul. For others, it's going to take a lot of work. All right? You don't need a PhD. You don't need a, to read 50 books a year. But I do think you have to be a thinker. You have to study. I think one of the primary enemies of reading and studying in the American church in general, maybe even in this room, is sloth. And we talked about sloth before. Sloth is not just laziness. Sloth is indifference. Sloth is, uh, is apathy. All right? And I think that's dangerous. One of the reasons there's such confusion in the church about issues like Calvinism and Arminianism or whatever it might be is because we've just given up. We think, oh, there's mysteries in the Bible we're never going to understand them. So we just use that as an excuse to not even try. It's like thinking, you know, we might need to go, we might, we might need to punt on fourth down. So I'm going to go ahead and punt on second down. Just because I know I might have to anyway. My encouragement is to not be lazy, to not be indifferent, to not give up, to fight to understand. That was Luther's big breakthrough with Romans. He said, I grabbed hold of Paul and I wouldn't let go until he told me what he meant by the righteousness of God in Romans 1. Seventh, read communally. I'd encourage you 
to read books with others. That could mean reading them like in a book club or something like that. Or it could just simply mean that you discuss it with others. You simply have a conversation about what you read, maybe with your spouse or with some other uh, friends or whatever it might be. You just have a conversation. I think that's a way for that learning to take deeper root. And then lastly, I'd encourage you to read convictionally. Here's what, convictionally. Here's what I mean by this. Over the past decade, I've noticed more and more people talking about being a lifelong learner. And lifelong learning is a great thing. But unfortunately, here's how people use that. They say, I'm a lifelong learner, and therefore, I'm never really sure about anything. All right? That's how they use lifelong learning today. They say 14th century Christians were wrong about the Crusades. And 19th century Christians were wrong about slavery. So who are we to think that we're right about anything? So I'm not going to have a position. I'm not going to have a conviction on any particular topic. And that sounds really humble, but it's not humble. You know what's humble? It's humble to actually tremble under God's word. To say, this is what God says, and to actually submit to it. To stand under God's word instead of standing over it and judging it. The person who says, holds God's word at a distance and says, I'm not sure what it says, so I'm not going to obey it, that's not humble, that's pride. The Bible talks about those who lifelong learn in that way, 2 Timothy 3, 6-7. through For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Notice this phrase, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That sort of lifelong learning is not a virtue. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. So yes, we should read with humility, but don't confuse this theological indecisiveness of our culture with humility. That theological indecisiveness is actually a sign of pride. What if I don't like to read? Everything we've talked about here is reading and studying. What if I don't like to read? My first encouragement to you would be to learn to love it. It is an acquired taste. I didn't love reading as a teenager or young adult. Only thing I'd ever read before I got saved at 23 were Hardy Boys and Narnia and uh, Lonesome Dove, The Firm, and Jurassic Park. That's about it. And uh, then I got saved and something clicked. All right, I fell in love with reading. Some of that's my unique personality, my gifting. But at the same time, I think maybe it's possible that some here don't love reading today because they've never really worked at it. They've never really acquired the taste. And they might find that the Lord would awaken that affection if given the opportunity. But let's say that day never comes Let's say that you can't read or whatever it might be. Can you still glorify God in thinking and studying? And the answer is yes, absolutely. The idea is that you think rightly, not necessarily that you read. And, uh, and so here are a handful of ways besides reading that you can think rightly and study. Number one, you can listen to audiobooks. Number two, you can listen to lectures, things like theological equipping. Or Wayne Grudem has an entire systematic theology. You can listen to him teach through that. On, uh, on YouTube or podcast or something like that. You can listen to good sermons. Find a guy like John Piper or Tim Keller or Kevin DeYoung, Tommy Nelson, John MacArthur, whoever it is, and devour their sermons. You can attend conferences. There's a number of ways that you can study, 
even if you don't enjoy reading or you can't read or whatever it might be, I want to end by considering Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on 2 Timothy 4.13 and encourage you with this. Paul writes, When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. And here's what Spurgeon says. He, that's Paul, has been preaching at least for 30 years, and yet he wants books. He had seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which it was unlawful for a man to utter, yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher, give thyself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Brethren, what is true of ministers is true of all our people. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritan writers and expositions of the Bible. We are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to be spending your leisure is to either is to be either reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. Paul cries, bring the books. Join in the cry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of words. You're a God who chooses to reveal himself through words, and so I pray that we would be a people of words. We would be a people of learning, that we would not be dry, dull academics. We wouldn't give in to that caricature, um, but that we would be a people whose uh, uh, mind's attention fuels our heart's affection. And so I pray that this would mark us as a people, that we might think rightly and thus worship rightly. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.